Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. So a listener commented the other day on Twitter that on two completely different recent episodes of this show, one about technology and the other one about jellyfish, the same idea came up, that stories play a powerful role in shaping our real lives. This idea comes up so often in so many different forms and contexts that I've started to think of it as maybe the crucial truth for understanding why people do the things we do. The stories we wrap around ourselves, our neighbors, our children, the invisible stories we struggle against. Nobody I know of understands this better nor writes more cleanly and poetically about these struggles than my guest today, Daniel Alarcón. He's the co-founder of Radio Ambulante, a Spanish-language podcast now on NPR, and he's the celebrated author of novels and short stories, including his newly published collection, The King is Always Above the People. Welcome to Think Again. Thanks, Jason. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you. So, when... First of all, when did you start writing? What was the early, I mean, we all write in school, but like when was the moment where you were like, okay, I'm, I mm. want to be writing something because I just want to write it? Yeah, I have, I have the memory of always having wanted to write, um, you know, from, you know, eight, nine years old. Okay. Uh, I was a real nerdy kid, read a lot. Um, I had really two obsessions. One was soccer and the other one was reading. Okay. And uh, so, so pretty early what on. Were you, was, what were you reading when you were eight or? Nine? I mean, what were you like well, into well, early on? Like? Yeah, well, <laughs> I, w I w you know, there's that that time in your life when you read, when you um, you have no, uh, you haven't inherited snobbery yet, so you don't know enough to to be snobbery. So, so, so you'll read, um, <laughs> you know, a John Grisham novel right next to like a Shakespearean play, you and hope. it's the same. It's totally the same. But what I remember the 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 important part of that memory for me is that my sisters and are, are older than I am. And we uh, all did our homework at the kitchen table. Okay. But my oldest sister, my younger sister, or my middle sister and me, and my mom would work at the table too. And, uh, and your mom was like helping you with your homework or doing her own work? She was doing her own work. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, and none of us could leave until we were all done with our homework. Okay. So I was, you know, I was the youngest. I was done with my homework, and so I just had nothing to do. So I would just read whatever they were reading. My sisters were in high school, so I read um, a bunch of books that were probably like age inappropriate. Okay. Uh, like I read, I remember reading Milan Kundera when I was like in, you know, sixth or seventh grade. Um, so you know, maybe a little, a little early for that kind of stuff, and 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 certainly reading like Shakespeare, and. Um, you know, like Scarlet Letter, like, you know, books that you would read in high school, except I read them in middle school. So like when I was, so I, I recall very clearly, like I was, I went away on um, sort of exchange, they called it, to the south of France. And I was with a family that I, that were much older than me. It was a couple and I had nothing in common with them. And I just did nothing but read the whole summer. And it was a similar experience where I was like way too young to be reading the stuff that I was reading. I think I was reading... I think I read Nietzsche and I was maybe like in, <laughs> in like sixth or seventh, seventh grade. I don't know. But I don't know. What was your, what, what was that like for, for me? Like, I think what it did, it kind of made me pretentious. Like, I think I took that information and sort of 
thought that I understood things that I didn't yet understand. Right. What was what was that like for you? Like reading way above yourself, your level. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I was pretentious. <laughs> I I I I wanted to, I I want to say no, but I'm probably <laughs> just being generous. Um, it's entirely possible that I was pretentious. Um, but you know, I was also. Um, there's that age when kids like, you know, you, you go through phases where you obsess about things, you know, right. and, uh, you know, dinosaurs, civil war. Yeah. Uh, and I would go through those. And then I would go through phases where I, you know, I, re I remember reading, um, Slaughterhouse Five. Okay. And then reading every, every Vonnegut book I could find. Yeah. And, uh, thinking that, that I remember thinking you, I didn't know you could write this way, you know, for example, Th things like that. And, uh, and I don't think that I, I, I think, uh, you, you, I, I certainly I did. I read that in that, in that at that age in a way that there wasn't a lot of recall. Like I think I reread right. um, Slaughterhouse Five, you know, maybe a couple of years ago, and I remember almost nothing, you know, or or even, um, you know, read them again in high school and was like, oh wow, I, I remember reading that, but I don't remember anything about it. Like, do you have like much better recall now for the things you oh, read? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah? I, I think it has more to do with the, the age and the the speed at which one was reading, and. Um, and maybe you're just reading for different things at that age. Right. You know? Um, and maybe, maybe there's like, there's less slots of memory and experience in which to sort of, you know, like less of a memory palace in which to store the stuff that you're absorbing. Yeah. Or maybe like a, a book leaves you with a mood, but the details of the plot yeah. sort of vanish. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I, those were formative years of reading and I sort of wish that I could go back to that, um, to that innocence of where, where you don't, you know, you're not, yeah. th there is no pretension because you don't know enough to be pretentious. Uh, you're forming your, your views. I remember the, you know, like the, that feeling of the first time you like have an opinion on, on an author. Right. Um, uh, the first time you, you sort of identify with a writer and are like that, you know, that, that's someone I'll, you know, I'll read anything they write. Yeah, I guess, I mean, it, it, something similar maybe happens that happens with music. I mean, yeah, I think sure. there's a there's a point in life beyond which that's just not going to be the, like, we don't, that innocence to a certain extent is lost. Like, well, because, and, the you know, the music is the soundtrack to the years when you're forming your identity. Right. And so then once, you know, core elements of your identity are formed, then you can't, you know, rescore it. Right, <laughs> you know? right, 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 right. It's scored. It, it, you know, it was already there and it's like you're, you know, doomed to listen to The Cure forever. <laughs> I can't believe that's what you mentioned. Yeah, I, <laughs> I'm sort of doomed to listen to The Cure. But um, but so, like, would you make a distinction, like, I sometimes think about the distinction between, like, wanting to be a writer and wanting to write. I mean, like, was the first thing wanting to be a writer? And huh. then was there a point where you figure out what it actually means to write and then and then come to terms with wanting to write <laughs> i've been thinking about this a lot in a, in a different context the idea of glamour uh-huh you know and the idea that there's these these there are yeah. these positions that seem very glamorous but actually there's no such thing as glamour there's no such thing uh as you know ev everything involves work and all of the work is has elements that are that are super tedious that are hard <laughs> that are boring right. that are a slog and certainly the best feeling in the world is having written you know, that, that is like the closest approximation to glamour there might be, but behind, um, you know, to get to that point of having written is just, just, just brutal, you know, torturous. it's just, yeah. it's torturous. <laughs> it feels like a, like a, you know, 
like a, a, a long sort of march, you know, slog. Right. It can be dispiriting. It can be very hard to see um, progress or to, f- to feel like you're making progress. It often feels like you're, um, you're, uh, uh, you can write on an individual day, say, oh, I wrote very well this day. Um, and yeah. you can even put together a month where you're like, oh, I've been working on this chapter and this chapter is very good. But then in the context of a novel, that chapter is a good chapter in a shitty novel. And then <laughs> and then um, you have to go backwards six months and fix fix it. Um, so it's, it's yeah, terrible. Yeah. Writing is terrible. I mean, is there so <laughs> there's this thing which is the 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 desire to make the beautiful thing. There's the, the beautiful thing inside you somewhere that is ineffable that you want to say. Right? right. And then there's the like what is going to be the context of this story? What are the specific words? What is the sort of syntax that I'm using here and so on? So like, I mean, for you, like when you're sitting down to write these days, like how do you, how do you reconcile those two things? Or like, are you, are you driven strongly by the desire to get to the ineffable thing and some sort of faith that it's going to emerge at the end of this process? Thankfully, there are... Um there are small and potentially delightful puzzles to be solved at every step. Right. Uh, whether it's at the sentence level or the, the scene level or like the character development level or the narrative structure level. Yeah. Uh, to say nothing of the, the, the most de- delightful and intriguing and, and a complicated puzzle of all, which is like sort of what is the meaning of this story. Right. Um, and I feel like you can never operate at that level you you know you there there's no there's no um i certainly have no tools that are sharp enough to operate at that level everything that you change at that level is an indirect result of smaller things that you change at the sentence and scene and character level you know I, mean? I see so so you're saying you're starting with the details and the puzzle yeah. solving and then the meaning emerges the meaning that. emerges and you might have an idea of what the meaning is going to be but you know the story itself might have other ideas right right um so i think that i uh am of the the writers that um play in miniature mm. um and you 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 hope that the meaning and and significance and uh and sort of the the the, the emotional intellectual the high end stuff uh, is is going to be reflected in these very small changes that you make at the sentence level got it so when you're like the germ of a story, you know, when you're starting one of the story, like the seed, you know, of, of, of say one of the stories in the King is always above the people. Let's look at, um, let's look at provincials, which I have mm-hmm. to say was probably my favorite mm. story in the book. Um, where, like, where do you start with that? Like, how did, how did that begin uh, for you, yeah, the all. provincials began as a character study for um, for the protagonist of my novel, and I walk in circles. Okay, so um, I knew he was an actor, and I knew that that being an actor was a core part of his identity. Right, um, and I knew that his relationship with his brother um, and his relationship with this potential. Um, you know, migration to the United States was a big part of who he was and who he thought of himself as. Um, and, um, and so I just wanted to create a situation where, where I got to see what he was like. You right. Know? And, um, and, uh, and I was also very intrigued I, in order to research, um, and I walk in circles. Um, I'd written, I'd read a lot of plays, 
And so I was just in the mode of like, like, you know, let me, let me try this. Right. You know? Right. And I think the reason why that, that I, 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 it's also one of my favorite stories because, um, it was a, it was an absolute experiment, you know, in terms of form. Right. Um, because there's a, there's a one act play in the middle of the story. Right, 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 right. Um, so it was a, it was a, it was an experiment in terms of form. It was an experiment in terms of, you know, I didn't know that it, I had no idea if it would come together as a, as a standalone piece. You know, I, right. I was writing it as an exercise almost. Um, and it's, you know, uh, we should probably, maybe we should summarize the story a little bit, but, but it, I mean, it, it feels early in the development of that character. Like yeah. he's not, he's not yet an actor uh, so much other than in, he, he's becoming an actor and he's certainly acting in the yeah. story, but we, we both because of his relationship with his father and the context and also I guess where he's at in his life and career, he feels like a nascent actor. Like, Oh yeah, he is. Yeah, I mean, he's yeah. a nascent actor in the novel too. I thought you meant early in his development yeah, in, yeah. That, in that he's not yet the Nelson from the novel. Okay. The Nelson from the novel is, is, is I think, um, you know, shaded slightly differently and, um, right. you know, so some small details which have, I think, big impacts are different. So this was early in my sort of understanding of Nelson. Got it. Um, the, Got the, it. The, the story very briefly is um, Nelson and his father are um, summoned to, to go to a small town where Nelson's father was raised right. in order to dispose of some, of, um, of some property that they don't want, that they've sort of inherited because a, a you know, a, a fairly unloved relative has passed away right in the process of signing over this paperwork they spend the night in uh in this small town and manage um to uh offend the sensibilities of everyone in this town <laughs> um basically all at once um and in doing so uh kind of almost as a dare nelson um pretends to be his brother francisco right. meaning he pretends to be living in the united states just back for a visit um and lords this uh, or attempts to lord this, uh, you know, supposed superiority over the provincial, um, you know, people that grew up with his father, um, and in the process, of course, is revealed to be as as provincial, if not more so, as as they are. Wow, that <laughs> that was a very good summary. I don't think I, I mean I wrote it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, this, you know, what what's interesting. I mean, there are a lot of things interesting about it, but like w what's interesting, w one thing that's really interesting is that there's, there's a lot within it about expectations, like about a father's expectations mm -hmm. on, on his sons, about the expectations of the town for their sort of prodigal son, which is the father. Um, is that something that comes up a lot in your stories about like the, the trying yeah. to be what other people want you to be or fighting against it? Well, or? I think also in my family's, History, like my father, you know that 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 scene in, in your to, sort of your earlier question was like, where do these stories come from? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that story came from a from a scene that actually happened. I remember visiting this town, Moyendo, where my father had family, where my father spent a lot of time as a, as a as a boy. This is Peru. In Peru, yeah. yeah. And uh, I went to visit Moyendo, and I knew I I was passing through, and I knew I had family there, and I just looked in the phone book and found right. them, and knocked on the door, <laughs> and you know, completely unannounced. People had, you'd never met. People before. I'd m maybe met, you know, when I was like four years old. And at this point I was 20 something, you know, yeah. um, knocked on the door and I, my aunt opened the door and she's like, she's like, es el hijo de Renato. It's Renato's son. Hmm. Without even, you know, you know, hadn't seen me as an adult ever. 
um, no Facebook, you know, no, do you, no, do you look a lot like your father? I don't, you, I mean, okay. I, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I must have an air of him, you know, but I don't think that I, we look, you know, alike. Um, and, uh, that night I spent that, that night at the plaza in this little town, a little beach town with my uncle's family. And they took me around to every single, you know, every bench and introduced me as, <laughs> as, uh, Daniel Renato's son. Um, and I just heard these over and over again, oh, your father was so smart. Your father was, you know, the brain on that kid. Oh my God, you know. Um, and just the 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 sense that my my father was, you know, like we say in in, in Peru, fuera de serie, like um like like not normal. You know, like <laughs> like right. you know, you have your special. Yeah, yeah, special in this way of like um you know, there's a lot of smart people, but he was brilliant. Right, right. And um and uh you know the sense of of um, of uh, of being the, the child of a celebrity or something in this in this very small town, but also it, I I, I felt like people respected my father and in a way they didn't really understand what he does. Right, he's a psychiatrist, you know, um, but they know that it's very important and that he's very smart. And this kind of this this there's a distance. There was an there was a almost an uh, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say awe. You know, I mean, you know, my my father's probably, I mean, I don't think to him it's like his greatest achievement or anything, but he was like, he's been interviewed on CNN in Spanish. Right. And like in this town, it's like, it's like, whoa, you know? And so, so right. things like that, 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 um, that, you know, certainly like gave me an unearned aura of, <laughs> of, uh, of prestige, you know? And, uh. You know, I think I behave way better than, than Nelson. Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, in my story, you know, but that that was just an amazing moment for me. Like, I, I, I you know, I, I knew this was a place that my family comes from. I knew this was a place to which I was connected. Right. But uh, but just to spend, you know, a couple of days there and sort of walk around with this with this glow. Celebrity. Yeah, it was yeah. very, very intense. And glamour, as you yeah. as you said earlier. Um in the in in the story, there's a kind of double-edged sword to this, you know, respect, right? Mm -hmm. In the sense that, like, you know, the there are the people who stayed behind in the town and the ones who left, and this, as you say, sort of not quite understanding, like maybe a misunderstanding about like what's what's that other world about a distrust of the city of city life mm -hmm. um and maybe an implicit sense of kind of defensiveness yeah. about provincial life as well yeah Did, yeah I, I mean i i i encountered none of that right um i didn't i didn't there, there was no you know in the story the the there's a teacher named santos right. who's retired and um and he is um he's basically the the the, the town's pride right. you know he sees uh his his younger you know the younger generation that the 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 kids that he educated um being uh too deferential you know almost to a to a person too deferential towards Nelson's father and he feels like he has to stand up and defend the town right you know because he's the the, the teacher um, and he's the teacher of that generation where, you know, the provincial school teacher was, was, was something of an authoritarian, yeah. you know, something of a, of a, of a tyrant. Um, 
if sometimes a benevolent one, you know, benevolent dictator. And so he, he can't stomach this kind of um, fawning over the prodigal son. And so he starts poking. And then when he starts poking, one of the ambitious young men, or younger men, you know, who's a grown man, of course, um, starts poking as well. Right. And then, and then that, that's at the point where Nelson can't help but poke back. And then the father slips up and says something that he means, but he shouldn't have said it that way. Right, right. And then right. that's when all hell breaks loose. I mean, it, it's kind of a double-edged sort of community generally, right? I mean, that if you, that, you know, you get, like with community, you get the coziness, you get the closeness, you get the sense of family and belonging, but you, but, you know, to leave that turns you into a, a kind of stranger, a betrayer on a certain level. Right, right. And, um, I mean, there's this phrase in Spanish, uh, pueblo chico, infierno grande, mm. uh, small town is a vast hell. And, uh, and, you know, there's an element of that as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, maybe we can talk a little bit about Radio Ambulante. Sure. Um, you, when did you start it? First of all, how long has it been going on? Uh, this is our seventh season. And what are, what's your like level of involvement at this point? What do you, are you actually like? help first of all i will i will say that in i had the very unfamiliar and in a sense refreshing experience of <clears throat> looking into radio ambulante and discovering a cultural product that i have essentially no access to aside from mm -hmm. reading the translation in english right. which which i think you know i've heard you i've heard you interviewed about it before and like it is the whole point is that you're doing something in Spanish for the 41 million or so right. uh, Spanish speakers in the U.S. and then many more around the world as right. well, and that that doesn't exist, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, our goal was to create um, a space for audio, uh, like uh, narrative nonfiction, in audio in Spanish. Yeah. Um, it's something that we couldn't believe didn't exist. Uh, it's a lot. It's something that everyone assumed existed, right? Uh, but no one had taken the trouble of, of making it. And um, so there was literally no narrative nonfiction in audio. In, no. in, in audio, in the, the, there's there's been a lot of talk uh, in Latin American journalistic circles about the the a kind of explosion of talent around the around long form journalism, right? Um, and there's a generation of uh, my generation and younger. Of, of very talented writers, uh, Marco Aviles, Gabi Wiener, um, you know, Sinar Alvarado, um, to, you know, many, many, many more, Leila Guerrero right. in Argentina, um, just tons of fantastic writers in print. And what we didn't have was that, that what I couldn't believe we didn't have was that in audio. And so the premise was like, well, you know, it shouldn't be that hard right. to take some of that talent and uh, and learn how it is that these shows that we love in the United States, like you know, This American Life and Radio Lab, and you know, on and on and on, do this amazing kind of storytelling. Um, right. That's rigorous journalism. It's super entertaining. Uh, you know, the craft of 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 narrative structure is you know a, a key point in in their production process. We have all this Latin American talent telling these great stories. Like, why don't we just put them together? seems easy it was really hard it was really really hard what what was the learning curve like there in terms of learning how to tell those stories and which stories to tell and 
you know, how to do that in audio for you? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'd, I'd done a fair amount of long form journalism, uh, lots of different pieces, always, you know, in the six to 10,000 word range, never done anything short, uh-huh. basically. You know, the technical stuff like cutting tape and mixing, you can learn that in an afternoon. Sure. People get intimidated by the technology, but it's couldn't be, you know, couldn't be simpler. Especially um, these days. These know. days, yeah. I yeah. mean, you can record a decent audio on your iPhone, you know. I think the harder part for me was something that had already happened to me in in literature and creative writing and, and, and journalism was I'd long ago stopped reading for pleasure mm-hmm. only and started reading for pleasure and structure. Um, so you'd read a novel and uh, you would, you know, forget for a while about structure and get involved in the story. But then, you know, when you put the novel down, I would think a lot about like, okay, how did they do that? You know? Right. And and then almost at the same time that I started doing that for reading that way, um, reading novels that way, is when I started listening to This American Life. A friend of mine, uh, gave, gave, you know, hit me to it. Okay. And then, and at that point, I didn't ever, I sort of replaced my you know, storytelling, uh, consumption for pure pleasure with no longer reading. I wasn't reading novels that way. So now I would just listen to the radio that way. Got it. Um, and so for years I'd been listening to this American life and, um, and never really thought, how do they do it? So the biggest change was sort of like trying to reverse engineer uh, the, the wisdom, uh, and storytelling prowess of someone like Ira Glass. It's like, how, how the hell does that happen? How does that get done. And it's amazing that I, you know, when you turn your attention on something in that way, like all of those things are there to be seen. Right. I mean, they, yeah, yeah. They're not, they're, they're, there's a, there's a, there's a, you know, I, I think the man's a genius. I think that there's, there's, I've learned a lot uh, in storytelling from listening to, to producers like, like uh, Iron Glass, but others as well. Um, and I, I can't believe that I didn't notice how it was, how well put together it was before, you know, right. because you're just in the process of enjoying it. I mean, there's a real rigor there, which like you, you know, you have the sense because of how, how beautifully it's crafted or, and as with any, any, you know, great story, like you have the sense that this is just magic, you know, yeah. sweeping you away right. <laughs> somewhere. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, we just started. I mean, I think the, the, the hardest thing or the most useful thing was thinking about so you go out and you record an interview. What do you do with it? Right. How do you decide which tape to use? How do you write around tape? Right. How do you, um, how do you, um, you know, build a story from this, you know, you know, primary resource? You how know? many of you was it to begin with working on uh, this? It was five. Five. Five of us at first. Mm-hmm. Uh, so five, five co-founders. Um, and, you know, we learned, I mean, I think one of the things I'm proudest of is we learned in public, you know, we started releasing episodes super early mm. in the process, um, didn't really know what we were doing. <laughs> um, and the improvement sort of in quality, um, I think is pretty extraordinary yeah. from the first season to the third and then from the third to the sixth. And now, you know, I'm, I'm constantly amazed, you know, you, and again, this whole thing of like glamour doesn't exist. Like you don't, you, you you realize what you've accomplished when you are when you present you know you go to a conference and you talk about what you've done or you do a live right. show or you know you're you're interviewed like something like this and people are like oh, how did you do that and I was like oh you know I don't know how I did that but now we have a team of 13 people in like seven <laughs> different cities we've made 80 episodes we have a distribution deal with NPR we're gonna have you know four and a half million listens this year 
I mean, it's, it is extraordinary and I'm super proud of it. And I'm, you know, I think one of the things that we've done that I'm most proud of is that we've hired and we've built a team of brilliant people, you know? So you asked at the beginning, like sort of how my, my level of involvement in it now, yeah. my level of involvement is, is great. Um, but I also have a team to which I can delegate and that's, um, you know, more luxurious than any five-star hotel <laughs> is being able to say, you know, Hey, mix this for me, <laughs> cut yeah. this interview up so that, you know, so I can write around it. That's my definition of like a Michelin star. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know about you, but like for me, having had to do a lot of things on my own, yeah. it's, it's often slow going, like developing trust in other people to take over things and like to build a team. Like, how did you go about that? Was, were these just people that became involved along the way? Cause they pitched stories to you and stuff. Or? Well, everyone, almost everyone on the editorial staff started out as an intern. Okay. Um, and sort of earned their, their spot, earned their place in the Got team. It. So it's so like we sort just, of mentorship, um, yeah, apprenticeship and, in a way. And, 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 you know, identifying talent when people come on they weren't the only interns that were around it's just right. the interns that that you know we've, we 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 found the right fit mm. you know and they had the right skill set the right temperament um the right work ethic um gotcha. and here we are well um you know like like many new yorkers i have the 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 completely false belief that I sort of know Spanish, but I'm obviously <laughs> going to have to really learn it so yeah. that I can listen. Um, that'll have to be, unfortunately, after I finish learning Turkish, which is my wife's language. Oh, wow. Well. <laughs> but uh, I really want to hear those stories. It's funny because everyone, uh, it's in the, in the radio world, as you know, <laughs> it's, it's pre pretty collaborative. And, and unlike the literary world, like people are super nice, you know, and, <laughs> right, and generally right. <laughs> like, want to help you. And it's very, it's really funny. It happens all the time where, you know, you'll be meeting with a colleague from This American Life or NPR or Gimlet or, you know, WNYC or whatever. And they'll say, oh, you're, you're the name from Radio Mulante. Man, I love Radio Mulante. I don't speak Spanish or understand it, <laughs> but I love what you guys do. And it's funny because we, you know, we are inserted into this, this universe of in New York, you know, radio people right. who are by and large, like, you know, the, the, the kindest creative tribe out there. Um, yeah. Radio in particular. Radio I in have particular. Say, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and even radio in New York to me does not feel like it has the, that New York edge. Right. You know, that, that you, that you would feel, find another, in no, other they're fields. all nerds, you know, yeah. or we are like, I mean, it's just like, Hey, yeah, yeah, you know, what's going on? Uh, I love and, your show. And know. very collaborative, you know, <laughs> yeah. and in our particular case, like we don't step on anyone's toes. Cause like no one, we're not impinging on anyone's market share. Right. 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 Um, and, and people call us all the time for, for, for connections, for help, you know, help us find a tape sinker, help us find a fixer, help us do this. Or like even to, you know, like, I, we consult on people's on stories that have to do with Latin America and right. and in return we get a lot of love we get a lot of support people are always interested in collaborating with us because they know one I think they trust uh, our uh, sort of our editorial and uh, rigor and um, and two I think they know that we have access to stories they don't have and you guys there there obviously this isn't your mission but has there been any has there been any uh, attempt to sort of redo stories 
in English for to to share them that way. I mean, yeah. that's obviously not the point, but it's not the point. But it's also not not the point. I mean, you know, yeah. it's just a question of like if we had a you know an an extra hundred thousand uh-huh. dollars and we could hire a producer whose job it was to create English language versions of every story, right? So we could, you know, but the, we don't have that person. Right. We don't. I mean, we 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 don't have that. Um, we don't have that funding and that funding. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm not actually even sure that, that would be if I were to like sort of find a hundred thousand dollars on the way back to the train right is now. Is that what you'd spend it is on? Is that first? what I'd spend it on? I think there's yeah. probably some other key areas um, in the, in the, in the, the team that, that might need more attention. Maybe on teaching, uh, you know, like the vast potential audience out there, like what a podcast is and those kinds of things, you know, yeah, getting, I mean, getting the word out. I mean, outreach is very, very important yeah, yeah. And, and, and sort of like, you know, it's, it's funny because uh, I mean, I'm sure you remember that video that Ira did with a, with a, with a very, with an elderly woman t- t- talking to her about what a podcast was. I think I've, I've read the, I've read copy from that, like, right. but I don't think I saw it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, but we're, we're doing that in you know like i feel like now in the united states because of serial and because of right. of um of uh you know mark Marin and like you know the ubiquity of smartphones people sort of know that audio on demand is a thing and it's called a podcast and right but in latin america we're still getting there you know we still have to tell people what it is and how they listen to it yeah. and a lot of our audience you know up until very recently you know i would say more than half of our audience in latin america listen to our podcast on their desktops, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which, which is like, seems counterintuitive, but you know, there's, a, there's any number of reasons why that's the case. You Ambulante know? means on the move. Yeah. Which, so being at a desk doesn't, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't fit. And yet, you know, I mean, the, the stories are on the move around sure, the world to their sure, desktops. Sure, sure, so, yeah. Exactly. Um, I think this is a good place for us to go to the second half of the show where sure. we're going to do these like, yeah. So this is for the audience's benefit because Daniel already knows this. Um, this part, uh, our video team has chosen some surprise short clips from Big Think's interview archives on different subjects that might uh, intersect with or bounce interestingly off of some of the themes of Daniel's work. So this one is, this video clip is entitled A History of Violence, and the speaker is Andre Debuse III, who is a novelist. I have not seen this clip, but I do know that. You know, I really wrestle with this whole notion of what a modern man is, and and I find it an endlessly fascinating subject. I think you have to talk about this in a class way. You know, when I go back to the neighborhoods I grew up in and I go to the bars I used to hang out in 30 years ago, there are still guys there my age in their early 50s who will, who will get in a fight, even though they could lose a, a house or, or get shot now. I'm not saying that, that working class people are, are more violent by nature. I think that educated upper class people get taught early that that's not the way to express yourself. And I think there are more options that keep you from expressing yourself that way. I have to admit that, that is, as much as I hate violence, and as much, uh, and I hope, and hopefully, Townie is, is, is about that. I, I, I have always hated violence. I was a sensitive kid who got beat on, and I learned how to become a perpetrator, but I always, at a spiritual level, knew that what I was doing was negative. That said, I do believe that part of being a man is being able to defend your wife from an assault. And I think that, that uh, 
most men would probably agree if pressed. And the truth is, I haven't punched anyone in 25 years, but I still know how to do it, and, and I'm glad I do. And I hope I never have to. But that's one of the things, you know, I write about in, in Townie is that I think the biggest thing I learned when I went from being um, a non-fighter to a fighter is not how to throw a punch. Uh, anyone can learn that on a heavy bag or, or with an instructor. The biggest learning was what you have to do to yourself spiritually and psychologically to hurt another human being. And that whole notion of the membrane I described where this was something I was semi-consciously aware of during my fighting years, but it's really inappropriate. You know, we just met. It'd be inappropriate for me to, for me to reach over and touch your cheek, even, you know, gently. It's a violation of your private space. I don't know you well enough. It's inappropriate. Think how inappropriate it is to ball your fist up and punch someone in the face as hard as you possibly can. It is such a violation of, and, and when, of sort of, sort of this membrane that's around all of us that should be inviolate and sacred. We should all have this, this barrier around us that, that no one can come into without our permission. When you look at consensual sex between adults, you know, we lower that barrier. We say, yes, you can come close, and that's fine, but in a fight, you have to violate that barrier, and to me, that was the biggest piece of learning psychologically is, is you have to learn to, to violate that. In order to violate, to break that membrane around somebody, you've got to break that membrane around yourself. And in my experience, I had to break and keep breaking and keep tearing my own compassion for another human being, my own sense of suffering with someone else, to really not care if I hurt that person I was punching in the face. Have you ever been in a fight? Uh, I, I, I got punched once breaking up a fight. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that, that, that's, that's a noble, you know, uh, yeah, relationship to violence. There was a kid I knew, uh, <laughs> my school, uh, he was a friend. He had a temper. He got in a fight with another kid and I didn't want him, them to get in trouble. So I tried to break it up before anyone would notice. And I got punched in the face. Okay. Um, so that, yeah, you've never. Yeah, no, no, I'm not a fighter. Uh, it's funny. I mean, this is like uh, there's nothing. There's nothing that that uh, <laughs> that Andre Dubuse is saying that I sort of disagree with necessarily, and yet um, the thing about defending your woman. I mean, no, it's just like the the the, the his uh, his expression of of masculinity is like he's so manly. I just I just <laughs> can't help but laugh. I mean. I, I don't know. I mean, you know, we're we're of different generations. He and I, um, yeah, and you know, obviously, I guess different different backgrounds, but um, but it's a very caricatured version of masculinity, and it's it's funny because a lot of people have remarked on the fact that this book that I wrote is you know all the protagonists are male, and it's a very male book, but like there's not a single dude in that book that is anything like what this guy describes. No. There you are know, two two guys. There, you know, one one very vivid fight that occurs because two two guys equally loved the same person who has died in the town, and they're right. fighting over over his, his moto taxi or, or his moto taxi yeah, yeah, yeah. or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or uh, you know, the maybe there's a there's a a kind of um, drunken uh, you know stevedore in uh, in a story who tries to rob the protagonist in uh, right. In the Lord rides a swift cloud, um, but even he is just kind of like pathetic and knows he's pathetic. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know what to how to respond to this except like you know, I I, I don't I don't 
I don't think that he's making it up, but none of that corresponds with my definition of manhood at all. Yeah. I mean, obviously, if like if some dude tried to assault my wife, I would step in and probably get my ass kicked um, because I'm not a fighter. But I don't right. think that that's the definition of of of, of masculinity. You 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 went to a private school. I did too. Like in 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 uh, in Alabama, was it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Shelby, I guess. Yeah, I in, went there somewhere. Like... In I'm in uh, yeah outside Birmingham. Yeah, yeah. Was that like all of high school or? Mm -hmm. And was that an all boys school or? or no, or no, it wasn't. Okay. it wasn't. Okay, I went to an all boys school, all yeah. boys private school. So and like Lord of the Flies. It was a little Lord of the Flies. Yeah, yeah. I mean there wasn't. Yeah, I. I no one was physically, but but the, the the issue that was that it was like it was all very smart, sort of upper class, upper middle class kids, right? Mm -hmm. So the violence was often more Emotional. psychological. Yeah. I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could see that. I mean, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I I I I would recognize that milieu. I think. I mean, uh, you know, I'm. I find it. I find expressions of of sort of violence as a, as a, as a theme and as an act, right. uh, you know, reprehensible, but also fascinating in that it's ubiquity and like why people do it and how people can do it in part because I'm not violent. Yeah. Um, but the, 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 the way that it's justified and normalized and, um, and then you read history and you're like, well, maybe it's normalized cause it's just normal. Um, <laughs> right. but, um, but I just don't, I, I don't identify with this this, this yeah, like yeah, any, yeah. anything about that video. I mean, he he's he's you know, <laughs> I think he'd think I'm a I'm a pansy. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Well, and, I was thinking about like um I was thinking about like Peck and Paw that movie um Straw Dogs where mm -hmm. Dustin Hoffman is this sort of like I don't know if he's a teacher but he's this sort of bookish dude with yeah. glasses and he and his wife and um, that actually is probably. Now that I think of it, because I haven't seen that movie in years, it's in a sense a racist depiction of Mexico. I, I didn't think mm -hmm. about it. But they go down to Mexico on vacation, and there's like essentially a home invasion. Right. You know, there's sort of dubious people circling and staring at them, and then they, and then the wife is sexually assaulted, and he is not in a position, Dustin Hoffman isn't in a position to, to do anything. defend her. Right. And so then it raises all kinds of questions, I guess, about you know, masculinity in different contexts and like, what should you, you know, like, is he lesser for that fact in some way? Because Yeah. But, but you, you know, know, implicit in this idea, uh, in this version of, of, of masculinity or this vision of masculinity is, um, is, um, the threat of violence, I guess. Yeah. Well, it's anyway, not just yeah. defensive, it's aggressive and it's not just aggressive towards other men. It's like, if you can, you know, if you can defend your wife, you can also assault a woman. Right. You know, and um, yeah. so yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I, 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 I couldn't. I, I just wanted to laugh the whole time I was reading. <laughs> you know. I think maybe we we got as much as we can out of that one. Sure. But, yeah. Sure. sure. Let's let's, let's move on to the next. Let's yep. see. So this is the writer Ariel Levy, and uh, the video is called "The Best Way to Survive Grief: Lean Into the Pain." All right. optimistic at this particular moment about the fate of the world, so I can't lie about that. What I can say is that when I was in a intense state of grief and I had lost my son and my spouse, 
and my house within a two-month period. After the initial period of being like, I am effed. Like, this is not going to be okay. I'm, I'm going down. Eventually, like, finding little nibs, little, like, molecules in the air of hope about, like, a little thing, you know, just, like, seeing a friend I really loved and remembering all the good times we'd had, like, over 30 years or whatever, and then having, like, a little spot of hope, like, maybe we'll have a good time again at some point. Like, maybe we'll, some other wonderful thing. Just anywhere you can find a little second of hope and feel grateful for it and sort of dig into it, that's the way through the tunnel of grief. I mean, that's, that I didn't, that, that's what I've heard from a lot of people who I've been in communication with since this book come out and people then write to me about their experiences and come and tell me. That's how you live through. It's like you just find some hope and it's like you just, it's like a little tiny fire and you go, and just like until you've got yourself like a little hope fire going and then you can get through. Well, I think, look, I think that when you lose a person or a marriage, you know, or suffer a trauma, but the main thing I'm thinking about is loss. When you lose someone, um, I mean, first of all, that's life. That's the price we pay to keep being here as living people. You're, that's the human condition is you lose the people you love. And trying to sort of plow through that and look for the good in it, I don't think that works. I think the way through pain is, is suffering, is like, you know, leaning into the suffering and being like, I'm going to actually go ahead and suffer my guts out. But throughout the process, moments of hope, if, you, if you're open to them, they come. And that's the way. That's the way to keep going is to find like, where, where are there bits of hope and how can you be grateful for them and like feed them so that you can find some excitement about staying alive. Yeah, I guess I've been re I've been reading Ariel Levy for a long time, and I don't I don't know anything about her backstory, so I don't know anything about what she went so, through. So, full disclosure, she was on this show, and I talked to her about the book that this is based on, yeah. and she very briefly she, you know, just in a short period, she lost she 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 was married, and that relationship fell apart due to her wife's alcoholism and. Um, she had to kind of come to terms with that. And also she carried a baby to term um, and and then the, and the baby was born alive and then died like mm. moments yeah. later. So, you know, that 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 was the experience that she oh, that's was brutal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think I think what you're saying is totally true. I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated by um, I mean, you know, I feel like I keep saying that. But in general, I'm human beings fascinate me obviously i wouldn't be a novelist or, or a journalist if not but um but people's ability to keep going you know yeah uh and i think you, you it, at least i always feel like there are things that um that i couldn't possibly survive um, but i think the people that survived them also thought that until it happened to them right 
you know? Well, so I'm thinking two things, right? I'm thinking that there's kind of the way that people automatically deal with extreme grief and trauma or have done throughout history, which is often like if they're going to survive it to just kind of like grit their teeth somehow and move through it, right? Yeah. And then I'm thinking of this sort of like ideal you know, what to me seems like the right way and that she was also kind of talking about as the right way, which is in some ways a very contemporary way of looking at it, like to process grief, which is to actually process it. Yeah. I don't know if it's the right way. I mean, I think that, that it's one way. Um, I mean like that it would result in less like, I mean, I guess it depends on the level of grief and trauma, right? I mean, if you're in a village that's been completely devastated, your children have died, like, you know, in war, like these kinds of things, like uh, you may just have to survive. But like, there's this idea somehow that if you could actually, like, as she said, lean into the grief, process the suffering, that the things you do to cope wouldn't come back to bite you in the ass later, like in terms of your being kind of... yeah changed as a person in ways that might not be good for you. you know? I just was speaking with a friend um, that I hadn't seen in many years and she had been taking care of a loved one who'd passed away, Sp- you know, spent the, you know, was her primary caregiver for the last year. And, uh, and we were, you know, having a conversation that wasn't about that. And then, uh, and then I remembered, she mentioned it and I remembered, uh, she mentioned it very obliquely and I remembered and I was like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. And she goes, yeah, I can't talk about that. And then we just kept right going, you know? Yeah. And I... I mean, that, obviously you have to respect that when somebody's... That's totally said, fine. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that's totally fine. Maybe she meant, I can't talk about it right now. Maybe she meant, I can't talk about it with you. Maybe she meant, like, I don't want to ruin our brunch um, yeah, yeah. by, like, bawling in front of you uh, and your kids, you know? I mean, I don't know what well, she meant. And, and in any case, it's not my place to say that there's one right way to, to deal with it. Yeah. From the outside, you're not in a position, we're not in a position yeah. to like decide how somebody else deals with trauma, obviously. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I think that there's just, you know, there's many ways. I mean, obviously you could say like there are self-destructive ways of coping, like turning to alcohol and drugs or turning to you know, nihilism, you know, those are, those are ways that are self-destructive and perhaps can be dangerous to others as well. Yeah. Um, but between that and like, you know, leaning into the pain and like filling journal after journal with like <laughs> right. you know, page about the, the hopelessness and bleakness of life and, and how much you miss that person and on and on. There's, there's a, there's a wide area in between. Between self-indulgence and. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't call that self-indulgence. I mean, maybe that's, maybe that's, Maybe that is a way to cope. And, you know, if you want need to be self-indulgent, right. you know, to get over right, it, right, right. by all means, do it, you know. Um, but I there's also probably a form of that for everyone that that involves sort of sinking into a kind of emotional quicksand. Like there is a way to yeah. do that that might not be helpful either, is what I'm Absolutely. saying. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know that, that difficult things that my parents have gone through that I didn't know about mm-hmm. until I was an adult. And that, you know, there's a reason why they were never mentioned because you mention it and it's just like a gushing wound still. And so we don't talk about it. And with a child, it's very hard. Yeah. Like when you're raising children, that like that is part of your responsibility as a parent, you can't necessarily share. There are things you cannot share with the child because if you do, you're making it the child's problem before they're old enough to. Absolutely. But, but there's something else, Jason, that you can't break down because you have other responsibilities. Right. You don't have the luxury of, of leaning into it to the point of collapse because you'll, you, you have other people relying on you. 
Right. And you know, that's the other thing of like, you know, how do you, how do you keep going? You just keep going. And, and, and sometimes some people, many people, I would say even most people don't have the option of not keeping going. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think about this, you know, maybe this is the last line I'll pursue um, before we wrap it up. But like, I was thinking about, um, thinking about this in the context of like discipline and self-discipline. I don't know about you, but like I went through, I remember going through a period in my early twenties where I had to basically learn to be a responsible adult and like go to a job and that job required me to get up at five in the morning and whatever. And I remember very vividly, (laughs) I remember very vividly that there was a moment where I was like this sort of internal, like Navy seal kicked in where if that didn't happen, I wasn't going to be that. I was going to lose the job. And there was like, there was a moment where I said to myself, like you get your ass up and that voice is still kind of in my head every morning when the alarm goes off, you yeah. know? Like, I don't know if there's an easy way, like if there's a way to do that without that violence, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's just a, a self-awareness of like, oh, okay, like now I'm in charge and and I, I'm, I'm responsible and there will be consequences. And it's yeah. almost like, I mean, it's what you're describing as adulthood, right? Right, but I guess what I'm saying is that there's a sort of a, a self, at least in the way I dealt with it. And again, like, you know, the, life real life is not ideal you know always but there there, there's a sort of bullying or self-bullying or Mm -hmm. violence implicit in that right as opposed to a kind of just a simple mature recognition of like i will now do what has to be done (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah I, i don't know like for you like in you know taming yourself to sit down and write novels these kinds of things like was there was there any of that you know how 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 did that go for you um, that process, the the like coming to self, terms the, with that, like self hate of of if you didn't do it. I, I guess I mean the self discipline, basically, like like you know. Of, but it's of, more punishing than self than than self discipline. It was it was sort of like I let myself down, uh-huh, you know. Uh-huh. The so I was set the alarm for at five a.m. and write from five to seven, and then I'd come out have a cup of coffee and take the kids to school, mm. and uh, oh, and wow. if I didn't do those two hours, you know, the day was ruined, you know? And then I would come back and work all day on Radambulante. You know, I wouldn't go back to the novel because I didn't have time. I had to do Radambulante. Right, right, right. So that was how... And then your day, and you, and your days would end, I guess, latish in the night, yeah? Or? Well, yeah, I'd go pick up the kids around, <laughs> you know, leave around four, pick up the kids, and then you're with the kids until they go to sleep, and then I would work some more. Yeah, know? yeah. Yeah. So, okay. And was that voice, is that... Is that just Danielle or is that your dad or is that like, what's that, where is that coming from? That like, get up, do the thing, make it happen. Like, was that, was yeah, that? Yeah, where does that come from? I think part of seeing my parents work the way they worked. Uh-huh. Um, I think part of it is just like, I feel I've inherited so many privileges and and had such good fortune that you can't do anything about that except try to work hard to earn back a portion of that you know to like um because like uh, unearned privilege is a constant but um the least you could do is is work hard to take advantage of the situation that you've been given you know to 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 not you know piss away your what people work so hard to give you i i think i think that's that's a 
perfect note on which to end this. Um, Daniel Alarcon, thank you so much for being on Think Again. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate it. Yeah, and uh, his new collection of short stories is The King is Always Above the People. And that wraps up another episode of Think Again. If you're new to the show or if you've been with us for a while and you enjoy the show and it's meaningful to you, I'm not going to ask you for money like your local public radio station needs to do, but I would love it if you could go online um, to iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher or wherever you listen and leave us a review uh, and or a rating because it really helps other people find the show. And we'll be back next week with something completely different.